Well, good morning. Cool. It is good to be here. It's good to get to continue uh, this series we're in, uh, really looking at the book of Colossians. And we've, we've kind of rolled out a, a mission statement, which is bridging relationships to pursue the life adventure of following Jesus together. And uh, we see this theme woven throughout the book of Colossians. So we, we really want to just take this whole fall and dive in and kind of break down the book of Colossians section by section and see, okay, what is God speaking to us? How is he challenging us? And uh, the passage we're going to look at this morning is this prayer, this prayer that Paul has for the, the people, the, the Christians who are living in uh, the in Colossae there. And it's really, I think, encouragement gives us lots of things for us to think about. Uh, but to kind of get us thinking on this line, uh, I've got an illustration, a story I want to tell you. And I think this story might let you know a little bit about myself. It might give you some insight into why I am who I am. Um, as many of you guys know, I grew up in Oregon. And about 45 minutes from where I grew up was this place called North Fork. And when the weather got warm, we had a tendency to not go to school as frequently as we should have and instead go up to the Little North Fork. And there was a bunch of places like this along the river where there was cliffs that we could kind of like hang out on and, and you know, be teenagers and jump off the cliffs into this icy cold water. And one of our favorite spots along the river was actually this place, which was called Salmon Falls. And what was most exciting to us about Salmon Falls wasn't jumping off of this cliff. Actually, our favorite part about this place is over on the right, you can see kind of a, a cave, if you will. Um, notice there'll be a circle here that'll appear in just a minute. Right there is actually a, a fish ladder. Back in the 30s, I think the Army Corps of Engineers or whatever blew a tunnel from the bottom of this waterfall up to the top to allow the salmon to, to spawn above the waterfall. And now I understand most of you probably didn't grow up in Oregon and the lifestyle of a, or life cycle of a salmon was not part of your third grade curriculum. So I got diagrams here for you. Uh, this is what, like if you were to look inside that cave, this is what you would see. So you have this series of walls and the, there's a strong current that, that flows down over these walls and allows the fish to swim up. But what we like to do as teenagers is we like to play in this. And so we quickly learned that it was a lot of, lot of a current, you know. So you get there and you could get to one of the walls and the wall would be about chest deep or, you know, waist deep, something like that. And you could put your hand on the wall and the water was coming over the top of it. And you could throw your leg over it. And if you held on tight enough, you could actually get over into the next pool and you could climb up pool by pool. And there was one point in this tunnel where the, the cave just turned so slightly. And when you round that curve, it went from being dark to being pitch black. It was so dark, you could poke yourself in the eye and not see your finger coming. It was pitch black. And there was, you know, these jagged rocks that would come off the ceiling. Because it wasn't intended for teenage boys to play in. It was intended for salmon to swim up. 
And um, we loved it, though. We thought we were so cool. And we would, we would always, we'd go and we'd climb up into that thing. And we really enjoyed, like, hanging out in there. And we would even, like, go up onto the cliffs and try to meet people and offer tours of the fish ladder, right? Especially, like, pretty girls would be like, hey, you want to see a cool cave? You know, that was our, our game. Um, and we actually built some skills up there. It was really dangerous. I remember one time my buddy... Billy, we're in the part where it's really dark. And he was trying to, to climb over one of the walls, and I heard him slip. I heard him make a noise. And I felt him brush back, like, past me. I was behind him. And, and if you missed, if you slipped, it would actually pin you against the wall behind you, underwater. And I knew that's what would happen. And I spun around, and making sure I didn't slide out and slide down the thing. I grabbed onto the wall and I reached around and I, I was able to feel his head and pull him up out of the water. Um, but we thought it was cool. And we learned some tricks. Like we learned that if you actually went behind one of the walls, you could like sit down in there and the water would like pin you against the wall and you could kind of like drink air bubbles out of the water. We thought that was fun. Or if you got right in the middle of one of the pools, you could actually start doing like somersaults quickly and it would just spin you in circles or our favorite thing to do is we'd get to the top and we'd like Superman swim and try to like bounce over the top of all the walls all the way out to the pool below. And um, I'm not trying to brag, but I think in my day, I might have been the preeminent underwater fish tunneler swimmer. <laughs> I think I was pretty awesome. Um, and, and we thought it had value and had purpose, but it was... It was stupid, right? If my parents knew I was there, I would have been in huge trouble. If my daughters wanted to go there, no way would I let them do that. And instead of being in school where we probably should have been, we were up there working on skills that didn't matter in life. Skills that were dangerous, that eventually would have harmed us. And I think in some ways that kind of reflects our life, that we live in this world that is dark, that is dangerous, that is filled with sin, that is filled with brokenness, that is filled with pain and suffering. And yet so often we find our value, we find our worth in how well we can navigate the brokenness of our world, right? How much money we have in our bank account, how much esteem we have from our coworkers, how good we are at this, how good we are at that. And, and all of those things have value to some point, but the prayer that we see in Paul's prayer here is the thing that has ultimate value, the thing that changes lives, the thing that is eternal is our knowledge and understanding of who God is and what his plan and his will is for our life. So as we get ready to read this passage, there's just one point I want us to, to think about and to just kind of process a little bit here. And that's this point that the knowledge of God is not a thing that matters, but the thing that matters. The knowledge of God is not one aspect of our life. It's not just one pursuit that's good to kind of think about from time to th time. That our understanding of who God is and his plan and his will for our life is the thing that matters. Because in the context of understanding that, it restructures and it reshapes everything else we do. It changes our values. It changes our ethics. It changes our moralities. It changes the way we view the world. And so as we read this passage, see how you see that come out in, in Paul's prayer. So if you want to open your Bibles with me, it's going to be found in Colossians chapter 1, verses 9. Um, and we're going to go all the way to 14. So I'll give you a second to find that. That's Colossians 1, 9 through 14. And it's, it's towards the end of your Bible there if you're, you're thumbing through it. 
Okay? Colossians 1, 9 through 14. And it says this, And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might and all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered you from the dominion of darkness and he has transferred you to a kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. What a beautiful prayer this is. Paul is saying, hey, I want you guys to know this, that I have not ceased in praying this prayer for you, that my deepest desire for you is that you will grow in a knowledge and an understanding of God's will, that you will understand spiritual things, that you will have wisdom, and that that will transform your life, that you will understand your identity, you will understand your inheritance, you will understand your forgiveness. How to say that word in your fact that you are forgiven. And the fact that God includes this in Scripture, I think, reminds us that this is God's plan for our life. This wasn't just a prayer for a group of people 2,000 years ago in, in a place far from here, but this is God's plan for all believers, for all Christians, that we would grow in our knowledge and understanding of Him. And as we get to the end of the message, there's going to be a, a specific application of how we pray for each other. And there's a really a beautiful point in there. But, but to begin with, what I, I want us to first kind of ask the question is, is what does this prayer teach us really about God's plan and God's will and God's desire for our lives? Right. So as we read this prayer, what is it that God is showing us? What is it that God is teaching us? What is the knowledge that he's calling us to? And the first point that I see here that I think is really um, kind of obvious, and, and, but really profound, is that God is knowable, that you can know God. So often I think we think about God as this distant thing that we can kind of know, but it's so far out there. How could anybody really know anything about God? And and so, you know, it's good to kind of think about it from time to time, but let's be honest. None of us can really know God. And there is an aspect of who God is that, that it makes sense for us to think about this because God is the creator of the universe, that God is beyond our imagination, that, that the greatest, most profound thing we can think about does not compare to the God that we worship. And yet God, in his awesome plan, in his grace, chose to make himself knowable to us, to make himself knowable most specifically through Jesus, that because of what God has done of his work, that we can know him. So when Paul is saying, I have not ceased in praying that you would grow, that you would be filled with your knowledge of who God is, that is because Paul believes absolutely that believers, that we can grow in our knowledge of who God is, that we come here and we study God's word, that we meet together as a church, that we engage in our life groups for the purpose of knowing God, and that is something that can be, do that can be done. How awesome is that? 
What an opportunity is that, that God, the creator of all things, has chosen to make himself knowable to you and I. And if that is true, if God is knowable, then the most important knowledge, the knowledge that really matters, the knowledge that we should be pursuing as followers of him would be the knowledge of him, right? Would be the knowledge of the gospel, the truth of who God is, that his great and awesome plan and his redemption of you and I. That's the story of the gospel. The fact that God chose to save us. And that is the story that we get to tell. That is the story that we come here to learn, that we come here to wrestle with, that we, that we process throughout our lives. The exact phrase that's used here in this passage is that you will be filled with the knowledge of God's will. Now, I think sometimes when we think of the knowledge of God's will or God's will, there's been a lot of books and such that have been written on this topic. And oftentimes we think specifically, okay, God's will is like, who am I going to marry? Got to make sure I'm part of God's will. If I mess this one up, I'll be out of God's will and I'll have a terrible marriage. So that's God's will or what university I go to or what career I take. But I think in the context of this passage, what, what is being driven at is not God's will as some minute specific path that we have to lead. And if we fall off that path, we're desperate or in, in a poor place. But in the context of this passage, the knowledge of God's will is God's large plan. That fact that God is above all and over all, that he is preeminent, meaning he is supreme in all things. And the passage that Ron's going to preach on next week really dives deep into that. So we're not going to go too far because I don't want to kind of steal his thunder. But it's an awesome passage. As you read on in verse 15, 16, it talks about that over all things, all authorities, all meaning, all, all um, powers and principalities of this world, that Jesus was before all things and Jesus was preeminent above all things. And so it's worth us focusing our life around and that he has chosen us as the story of the gospel. So going back to my, um, my cave swimming illustration, right? The fact that I became the preeminent underwater fish ladder climber doesn't really matter. You're all laughing because you realize it's not a real thing. Okay. Compared to knowledge that matters, compared to things that could affect and change my life, that is like way down here. And the same thing I believe is true when we understand and we're filled with the knowledge of God's will of all that God is over and all that he is supreme above, the things that we value have to be put into that context, right? We have to see them in relationship to what he is doing and his plan for our life and his love for us and his grace for us and his desire to see us grow and know and experience him. All those other things seem really insignificant, all the things we do in comparison to that. And over and over, that's what Jesus is trying, or what, what God is getting at in this passage. It goes on to say, so that you will grow in these things, you will walk in a manner worthy of pleasing him, and you will realize that you have received the inheritance with the saints, with all believers of all times, that you will share in the light of who God is, that you will realize that you have been bought out of darkness, that you are no longer slave to sins, that you have been redeemed. And the hope and the prayers that we will be filled with this knowledge. 
This idea of filling directly connects to the, the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. What a powerful reminder that is for all of us that the very Spirit of God dwells in our life, speaks to us, shapes us, and teaches us the will of God. So we at Bridges, we believe that the Word of God, the Bible, is complete, right? We're, we're not waiting for a Bible 2.0 to teach us more about God's will. We're not waiting for another revelation. But we also believe that Bible 1.0 still has a lot that we can be learning from it, right? That all scripture has been written, but not all scripture has been received by you and I. In, in other words, the Holy Spirit is continuing in our lives to open our eyes to things that we've been missing, to help us see the brokenness in our lives, to help us see those sin. And as we're reading scriptures, we're reading God's plan for our lives, all of a sudden we go, whoa, I need to be more obedient in this area. Or I need to be transformed in this area. Or, wow, I never realized this about who God is. So Ron, last week, he, he got up here and he, he threw out this challenge to everybody, right? He said, anybody who memorizes the entire book of Colossians, he's going to buy dinner for. And then he threw me under the bus and said, I would buy dinner. Um, so let's just be clear on that. I will take you out to the nicest restaurant and get you the fanciest cup of water I can afford. Okay, so let's be clear on what you're expecting from me. Uh, no, but, but Ron's point in that was not that he cares that we have the discipline to memorize a bunch of words. It's not that we have the discipline to, to walk through a process, but that he wants us to process this book at such depth, to memorize it, to be thinking about it, to be processing it, so that we are filled with this knowledge of who God is and God's plan and his will for our life. And, and what's beautiful about that is as we deal, or as we, um, we allow God's word to, to dwell in our life, to process in it, as we're filled with that knowledge, it begins to affect our lifestyle. It begins to affect our actions. I think it's really encouraging that Paul doesn't start his prayer with saying, you know, I have not, not ceased praying for you that you will quit doing that sin you've been doing. Or I have not ceased praying that you will quit lying to your parents or that you will quit cheating on your spouse or you will quit cheating your boss at work. He doesn't start with the moral and ethical things. He starts with saying that you will be filled with the knowledge of who God is and so that you will walk in a manner that is worthy and pleasing to God, that you will bear fruit in your life. And the beauty of this is as we really focus on the knowledge that matters. It transforms our actions. It affects the way we live our lives. It affects the way we act. He uses the, the word picture of walk in a manner. In our mission statement, we've kind of used the, the word picture, the life journey of following Jesus. It's this ongoing relationship as God is teaching us what it means to follow him, teaching us what it means to be obedient to him, teaching us what it means to reflect who he is. It's this ongoing process, this ongoing work. And the results of that are that so we will produce good fruit. In other words, so that we will have actions that are pleasing and honorable to God. There's an expression, probably a lot of you have heard it before, where there is no root, there is no fruit. Has anybody ever heard that expression? 
The idea being that if we want to produce good fruit, in other words, the actions that God has called us to produce, the morality, the ethics, that we have to be rooted in him. If we just try to make Christianity about behavior modification, I think we're going to burn out quick. If it's just about not doing this or doing that or not looking at this or looking at that, it can be overwhelming. But instead, if we put our focus on being transformed by who God is, it begins to to transform our actions. It begins to help us see our actions, our circumstances, our situations through the eyes that God sees those circumstances. And I think when we think about our spirituality, our, our life this way, it really gives a lot of hope and meaning to even why we look at theological concepts. Right? Sometimes those deep theological concepts can feel like, well, those are for like pastors and seminary students. That doesn't really affect the way we live our life. Like, let's look at the Trinity. How many have kind of figured the Trinity out, the concept of one God and three persons? That's just super simple for you. You got that down? Okay. A couple of us. Most of us know, right? But think about even that concept as deep and and theological and even academic as it might sound. The fact that God in himself has existed in three persons for eternity past in perfect relationship with himself. Meaning that God has never had some sort of social deficit. It wasn't like there was some point back in history where God was looking at himself and going, man, I'm really lonely. I would like a pet. Maybe I'll make people. If I could just have millions of people that disobeyed me and were hooligans and run amok, then I would be content in life. He didn't need us. We were not filling any sort of social or relational need that God had because God filled that need in and of himself. And yet, in God's grace, in God's perfect plan, God decided to create humanity, knowing full well that we would turn our backs on him, that we would rebel against him, that he would send his son to rescue us, and that through that process, the world would know that he is a good and loving God, that he would be glorified in that. And he chose to do that. So now what if we applied that principle into the way we approach our relationships? How often do we approach relationships in some sort of transactional way? Okay, I'm going to marry you because you're pretty and you're going to make me feel this certain way. Right? We we all at some level do this. I'm going to be friends with you because you're fun to be around and you make me feel this certain way. Or this or that, or whatever those relationships might be. Instead, what if we looked at it through the eyes of the Trinity, a perfect God and perfect unity that chose us, not because of what we could give to him, but because of how he could give to us? And what if we treated each other with that way? See how something that is incredibly kind of academic and theological is actually super applicable to how we live our lives? As we wrestle with these concepts, it affects our our actions, There's another thing in this passage that really stood out to me is how the things that we focus on, the things that we learn, the things that we know, the knowledge that we grow in, how it affects our motivation. And in that, the point being that knowledge that matters affects our motivation, especially in verse 12 and 13 or 11 and 12 and 13. He says this, I want you to be filled with the knowledge of God. You'll grow in him. You'll walk in a manner worthy of him so that you will be strengthened by all power according to God's glorious might. 
What a beautiful picture that is, that, that God wants us to be encouraged and strengthened with all power. The idea of all power means his power, his strength, according to his plan, according to his love for us, so that we will grow in endurance and patience with joy. I feel like I can have either patience or joy, that seldom those things happen at the same time, right? Either I'm being patient and I'm frustrated about it, or I'm having joy and I'm doing my own thing my own way on my own time. And yet the promise of us growing in our understanding of who God is and his plan for our life is that we will be strengthened and we'll be motivated, we'll be encouraged to live the life that God has for us. I was thinking about an illustration to this to kind of just even as I was processing it myself and I was reminded of my, my two little girls and when I taught them to ski. So both of my girls, I, was, I got to teach to ski when they were about three years old. Um, and the way I taught them to snow ski is I got this vest for them. Maybe some of you have seen these vests. And on this vest, there's two buckles on either side of the vest. And off of those buckles, they wear the vest and off the buckles come two leashes. And I would stand behind the girl with the leashes and we could pretty much navigate ourselves down any slope and I could kind of turn them, you know, like you turn a horse on reins, I could stop. Um, I would keep them from hitting trees too hard. And, you know, it's, I was decent at it, right? And so we, we could pretty much make it down most slopes. But they were still scared. Dad wasn't always faithful, right? I'm not God. I'm not always faithful, always filled with strength. There was times that things didn't go well. And they're three years old. And they're looking at legitimately scary stuff. They're standing on top of a mountain and they're looking down and they're seeing a slope that is steep and it's a long ways to the bottom. And they know they do not have the power. They do not have the strength to make it safely to the bottom of that hill. They'll make it to the bottom of the hill, but maybe not safely. And... It takes them trusting me. And I say, come on, honey, you can do it. Go for it. Push off. Go. But until they start going down the hill, they can't feel my power. Right? They can't see me. I'm behind them. And as long as those leashes are slack, they don't feel my strength in their life. It's not until they start heading down the hill that I take control that I can start moving them, that I can start slowing them down and doing those things. And, and that feels a lot like some of my life when I'm trying to trust God. There are things that God is calling me to that are scary, that are overwhelming, that I feel defeated in. There are times, there are certain sins in my life that over and over as I read scripture, I'm convicted of. And I feel like saying to God, God, you know I can't fix those. It's too hard. I've tried before, remember, I, was, I made that commitment to you that I wasn't going to do these things anymore, and I did them again and again. God is saying, trust me. I want you to be strengthened with all power, meaning all power that comes from me. Or God saying, I want you to forgive that person. God, no, no, I can't forgive that person. That person's terrible. They hurt me deeply. If I forgive them, I might have to be in a relationship with them. I might have to get to know them. I might have to to someday like them. I don't want that. I'm not willing to do that. And God is saying, trust me. I will strengthen you with all power. I will give you endurance. I will give you patience and I will give it to you with joy. But it takes us trusting God. It's scary. And he says, giving thanks 
in this, that, that as we do this, that we will see not only are we going to experience these things as we grow in our knowledge of who God is, that we will be strengthened by that. We will learn to give thanks in that because we will realize our place in God's beautiful and great and divine plan, that we will realize that we are inheritance that we are receiving the inheritance of the saints, that we are considered by God even to be saints, to dwell with him in light, that we have been delivered from darkness. In scripture, the, the metaphor of light is used for God. In fact, it says in heaven that there will be no sun, no moon, because God exists in perfect light. The idea being that we get to experience unity with God in heaven, experience the light that is God. And that this brokenness, the sin, the darkness that we find ourselves surrounded by now is not our ultimate reality, that we've been delivered from that. In fact, it says that we have been redeemed. Our sins have been forgiven. The concept of redeemed is kind of a, a beautiful concept, isn't it? I, the, I often know when I think of being redeemed, I think of like the the CRV that's on the top of a soda can, you know, the California redemption value. So you know how that works. You go, you take your soda, you go to the, you buy it from the Seven Eleven or wherever you buy your, your soda. And they sell it to you, plus they tag on an additional five cents. And they take your nickel and they sort of hold your nickel hostage until you return that soda can. The soda can kind of becomes the ransom to get your nickel back, in a way. And so until you return that can, you can't use your nickel. It is, it is trapped. And I think in some ways we're kind of the nickel, that because of our sin, we are trapped. We are enslaved. And yet Jesus offered his life as a ransom for you and I to give us freedom that we didn't deserve, to give us forgiveness of sins. And the great joy we have as a church is to dwell in that knowledge, to seek to understand that deeper in such a way that it affects our actions, it affects our motivations, it affects how we see ourselves, it affects how we see the world, it affects how we treat each other, the sort of choices we make. Now, I know up to this point we've been a little bit um, kind of, we've been talking about this at a high level. Right, kind of a philosophical level. And I want to kind of get really practical here at the end of the message. And as you know, today is our Life Group Sunday. And uh, we really believe in the power of life groups here at Bridges. Again, going back to that mission statement, it says, building bridges um, to pursue the life adventure of following Jesus together. If you notice, there's kind of two like together points in that. One is building bridges that, that we want to be about actively building relationships with each other. I'm sorry, it's bridging relationships. Anyway, read it on the screen, I guess, when it comes up. Bridging relationships to pursue the life adventure of following Jesus together. That twice in that is about doing this together. And we know full well that you can grow in your spiritual life. You can pursue Jesus. You can grow in the knowledge of him um, without joining a life group. But as a church, we want to do it together. And so we want folks to join and to plug in. So I'm going to give application specifically for life groups. So if you're not in a life group, uh, maybe this is a good kind of motivation to go join one, or maybe you can just figure out how to apply this individually. They're all stuff that can be applied outside of the structure of a life group, but I want us just to be thinking about it in that context. So the first point here is pray for what matters, how growth in the knowledge of Jesus and how we fit into his plan. 
So think about this. In our life groups, I'm hoping that most of us are in a habit of praying for each other in our life groups. And most of the time, we pray for really important things. We pray for different circumstances, situations that are going on in each other's lives. And those are great. I don't want us to not pray for those things. But think about the model that we just saw here from Paul's prayer. Paul's prayer very specifically was that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will. He was praying specifically for their spiritual formation. Now, how much time do we spend praying for each other's spiritual formation? Praying that God works in each other's lives, that God, that they grow in their knowledge of who he is. Again, not praying that my son will quit doing this or quit doing that. Not praying, although I think those prayers are valid and have a place in our prayer life, but really praying for each other that they will just be filled with who God is and God's plan for their life. So think about that. What, what would that look like in your life group? Maybe it's just individually. Maybe you as a member of your life group beginning to pray for each other. Maybe it's a time in your life group you do that. I don't know what that might look like, but I, I think there's a really beautiful model for how we can pray for each other. The second point here is commit to focusing on what matters, and that's knowledge that affects and transforms our actions. Now, I've been involved in life groups for quite a while now, and um, I think most of our life groups here have some sort of Bible study function to them, right? There's some place where it's either through a video or a curriculum, but we're studying God's word. And that is great. But I think just opening the Bible and reading it doesn't necessarily mean we're reading it to truly know the plan and will of God. It doesn't mean it affects our actions. I've been part of many Bible studies that is just kind of an a academic look at a piece of literature, Right? You look it up, okay, what was the author talking about? What was the social and kind of the context? That's an interesting way that they phrase this term or that term. And we can talk about it without really having it affect our lives. And I think a really great test for us to be asking is, is the way that we're addressing God's word, is it affecting who I am, how I see the world, and how I'm acting in this world? And if not, how can we change that? What sort of questions can we ask of ourselves and of each other to encourage this? I mean, a simple way to do that is at the end of your Bible study, just to ask the question of, okay, what should we be doing as a result of this, what we just read and studied today? That's a, it's a super simple question that really forces us to be vulnerable and honest and to apply it. The last point I want to make here is, um, are we encouraging each other with truth that matters, that truth that that helps us trust in the power and plan of God's will in our life, okay? So as we think about encouraging each other, um, probably most of us are encouraging the people in our life group. That's probably one of the reasons you enjoy being part of your life group is you know you can come there after a hard day, say, man, I had a really hard day today, and folks in your life group will encourage you. And if you're in my life group and you said that to me, probably my natural response to encourage you would be, oh, I'm sorry that happened, Oh, you're a good person. Nah, your coworker must really be terrible. They must not appreciate you. You're, you're pretty awesome. Okay? And that's pretty shallow, to be honest. That doesn't mean that there's not a place for that kind of encouragement. Sometimes it's nice just to have a little bit of shallow encouragement in our life. But what about this encouragement that we see modeled here in Paul, where he says, my prayer is that you will be strengthened with all power according to God's glorious plan. What would it look like if we started encouraging each other that way? So instead of saying, oh, you're a good person. I'm sorry you had a bad, bad day, saying, man, that's tough. But I hope you know 
that God is behind you, that God is calling you to, to rise above this, to, to demonstrate love, to demonstrate his grace. And he has promised that he will be there with you. He's promised that he will guide you with you. Know that you are a saint in the eyes of God. To me, this is even more profound encouragement than just you're a good person. So what would it look like if we begin to work out this principle in our life groups? And just the way we think about how we're encouraging each other. I think these things could really kind of open up our life groups to help us share even deeper intimacy and support. And so we become places that are really being transformed by God's word, God's knowledge in our lives. So I'm going to go ahead and pray. And then again, just remind you over on the other side, we have all of our life groups kind of displayed and represented and just take a cruise. Maybe, um, maybe God will kind of speak to you through that process. Let's pray. God, we just thank you that you have a glorious plan, a glorious will for our lives, that we come here um, to just seek you and to know you. We thank you that you are knowable that the things that we are reading, the things that we are studying, um, we can know that we can have confidence in that can affect our lives. I pray just for the rest of this afternoon that uh, you bless our conversation, you bless our interaction. I pray just even for those, those moments that you kind of supernaturally put us together and connect us with people that might uh, be people we run with and walk with and kind of discover this life adventure of following you together with uh, over the next years or even over our lifetime. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Bridges Community Church Sermon Podcast. Bridges Community Church is located in the San Francisco Bay Area in Fremont, California. To know more about Bridges Community Church, please go to our website at bridgescc.org.